0: Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system which supports our independent. community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care.
1: Welcome back to the PBM Reform podcast series. I've been so excited to launch this show where we're really packing this through some of the most innovative thought leaders in the um, pharmacy and healthcare space. And there are components of PBM Reform that aren't about pharmacy benefit managers. They're about our other insurance um, vehicles and insurance uh, mechanisms that are preventing patients from getting the care that they need. And today is a special opportunity to bring in my home state expertise, um, the great state of Pennsylvania. Our guests today are Representative Donna Oberlander and Susanna Marsardis. Um, We're talking about PBM accountability today, but there's a special bill that we're going to be discussing about from uh, the perspective of Representative Donna Oberlander. She's a seven-term state representative for the 63rd Legislative District, and she's been a proven entrepreneurial um, uh, leader in her community as well as a public a uh, servant, uh, really experiencing, um, experienced in understanding how economic development affects uh, not only the community that she serves but also healthcare in general. Excited to have her insights. Welcome, uh, Representative Oberlander.
2: Thank you, Todd. I'm very excited to to participate today and look forward to the conversation.
1: We also have Susanna Marsardis. Uh, she is the executive director of the Community Liver Alliance, which works across Pennsylvania to support liver disease awareness prevention, education, and research. Welcome, Susanna.
3: Thanks, Todd. Thank you for this opportunity to spread the message about our work in um, Pennsylvania on non-medical switching and with Representative Oberlander through the Pennsylvanians for Fair Health Coverage Coalition.
1: Absolutely, and the reason why I think this is so special to be part of our national publication is because there are other states that are experiencing similar obstacles to getting their constituents and their communities the care that they need. And I think it's interesting to see when we have states like Arkansas who have brought uh, cases against our insurance carriers and PBMs to the Supreme Court in order to make and and help our policymakers uh, realize what's really going on. This is very important. So I kind of want to start out in kind of setting the stage with Susanna. We really want to understand um, CLA, understanding what that means. And it's recently expanded from a Pennsylvania-based advocacy organization to a national organization. And I want to understand that expansion as well as what you are focused on with regards to the Community Liver Alliance.
3: Sure. The Community Liver Alliance started out as a Pennsylvania-based organization, and we quickly grew across the region and then expanded nationally last year through the pandemic. And we do all things liver, but we really do live our mission across the nation. And advocacy is a really important part of that, being the voice of the liver patient, but more so with the work with Representative Oberlander and the non-medical switching legislation, we're able to give a voice to all Pennsylvanians, I mean, we're all patients uh, after all, but we're excited to be able to take this message, as you said, nationally, and this is a national podcast. So, you know, we advocate in other states with similar um, issues, including uh, PBMs, non-medical switching, and other um, issues that are important to patients.
1: Representative Oberlander, you have so much on your plate at one time. I don't have to tell you, you live it every day as a state representative and your constituents expect that you have your eyes and ears on different, um, economical issues, healthcare issues, um, uh, child awareness, um, issues and, and caring and, and helping to cultivate and support laws that protect Pennsylvanians. What is your, um, what is your oversight? What is your insights to, um, the CLA as well as the bill that, that you're helping to build? to uh, deliver better healthcare services to um, fellow Pennsylvanians?
2: So my initial insight occurred as the chair of the Diabetes Caucus, and I had constituents speaking to me about some of the changes that had occurred to what they were able to get in terms of um, insulin pumps and insulin equipment and, and those types of things, and they were very concerned because they had Insurance, they were well managed on what they had. And then they had something change. And so that was my really initial insight to what was occurring in this space. And then the the issue became bigger, and we were able to connect with the uh, the liver Association Alliance, I'm sorry, the community liver Alliance. And they came to my office with stories of changes that have occurred. Real live people who have been impacted by this medical, non medical switching. And so we worked on the bill and we've been uh, working together for, I guess this is the third term now.
1: How does this play back into caring specifically for patients that are suffering with some type of uh, liver disorder or disease, Uh, Susanna? How is the current situation? Our status quo preventing uh, patients from receiving the coverage that they should be receiving?
3: Well, non-medical switching is a dangerous insurance practice. And you know, when when this the switch is made for non-medical reasons and stop covering medications or increase out-of-pocket costs for treatment or make other negative changes after the plan is begun. You know, it, it creates a, an unstable environment for patients. They can no longer afford their medications. And we've seen this time and time again, similar to Donna's situation with real life individuals. We've spoken to patients, their caregivers, and even their doctors and nurses who explain that this can really be devastating to individuals and their families, With respect not just to cost, but when you switch somebody's medications or take it away, especially if they've been stable on those medications, it has precluded people from doing their job. You know, for example, we have patients who have epilepsy that had been switched and had breakthrough seizures. Well, now they can't drive their car. Their license is suspended for a while. That affects their job and their uh, ability to manage their home and their life and their family. So we've been able to demonstrate this over and over again with um, patients and the devastating effects.
1: I think what's happening is we're seeing specialists, organizations, pharmacists, and physicians, even surgeons who are who know that their patients are experiencing something to do with insurance where they don't understand why the coverage isn't there, or or worse, why coverage changes midstream. And like you said, Susanna, it has nothing to do with the medical necessity. It has to do with the dollar. It has to do with the profitability of the insurance carrier. And that, in, in my opinion, with regards to healthcare in general, that's just a, it has to go away. It's a, it's a white collar crime per se. When I think of our other guest, Dr. Madeline Feldman, who is president of the Coalition of the State of Rheumatology Organizations, she's also the chair of the Alliance of Safe Biological Medicines. She recently spoke to us on the PBM Reform podcast, and she called out this non-medical switching, which you've referenced, uh, Susanna. Can you explain uh, to the audience a little bit more about medical switching and perhaps how the PBMs are encouraging this practice and how this impacts um, CLA and uh, Pennsylvanians.
3: Sure. Well, in our opinion, it's about really saving the dollar. It's not about the care for for patients. And so I think both the PBMs and the insurance companies, you know benefit financially by reducing or restricting services. and Really, our legislation is an honor of the contract. It's very simple. We're just asking that insurance companies honor the insurance coverage that was promised that patients entered into with them at that time. So we we are um, worrying about patients, especially who have chronic illnesses and who have been stable on medications And as it currently stands, insurers are able to put additional restrictions on coverage and raise out-of-pocket costs or even remove coverage of a treatment or service altogether at any time during the contract year.
1: Representative Oberlander, I want to bring you into this conversation to really kind of jump onto the legislation and the bill that you're supporting and how this not only impacts um, specifically someone that that is is needing very specific uh, liver treatment, but how this bill will help us set the stage to open up other opportunities for Pennsylvania legislators to understand, hey, there's a bigger problem here than just this one uh, instance. But as you know, we have to take it in pieces. And I think that's why this legislation is so important.
2: So House Bill 599 really is as... Susanna said, a contract 101. And the reason that it's so important is that we found that not only individuals that are associated with the Liver Alliance, but individuals across the Commonwealth, across uh, different rare diseases, and quite frankly, not so rare diseases, were finding that in the middle of their contract year, they were having non-medical changes, uh, most." most specifically with medication. They had a change in manufacturer, they had a change from their uh, brand name to a generic, and then they have real life consequences that impact their their ability to work, their ability to live, their ability to do the things that every day uh, they were able to do before. And so we've had to, to increase awareness that this is actually occurring I will tell you that in the many conversations that we've had about this issue, we've been uh, informed that this does not happen. However, we have real life examples, uh, regardless of where you are in the Commonwealth, of people who have had this occur. And so bringing that to legislators' attention, bringing that to uh, the insurance company's attention, uh, that's what the purpose of this bill is for, and that's why I'm I'm pleased to continue to to work on this. It is a bipartisan bill, and I am certainly uh, looking forward to hopefully passing it uh, this year.
1: Can you also comment on Senate Bill 828 and how that also is part of your initiatives and the initiatives of legislators um, in the state of Pennsylvania?
2: I would be pleased to. Uh, The Senate bill is being offered by Senator Judy Ward. Judy is a, an excellent partner. She is uh, a nurse and she's also, I believe, the chair of the Rare Disease Caucus in the Senate. Uh, she and I had a conversation about this particular issue, this particular bill, um, You know how it's impacting individuals and how we could partner in trying to get that vehicle regardless of whether it starts in the House or starts in the Senate, there's no pride of authorship. We just want this issue to be addressed and felt that it was a great way for us to partner and specifically having individuals that are participating in the rare disease caucus um, have their help in pushing that message and ultimately getting the bill passed so that this issue stops impacting individuals.
1: Susanna, you have such a um, mission in place, and it's extremely difficult because you almost have to take it in pieces to help legislators understand what's truly happening behind the scenes, which, like you said, and we both agree, it's it's not about the health care services and, and ongoing treatment that, that a patient is getting. It's about the um, profitability of the insurance carrier, and there's a balance between that. I don't expect... There to be um, a, an open, um, socialistic, like a uh, uh, you know, um, environment where where our <laughs> physicians and our our insurance carriers aren't making uh, money. That I understand. I'm in the real world. I'm a capitalist. I believe in it. But when we're talking about tax dollars that are supposed to be used to ensure that we have insurances, um, private payers. Uh, people like myself that go to work every day and have, um, you know, commercial healthcare benefits, I expect those benefits to do what they were designed to do in keeping myself and my family, um, safe, uh, and, and also healthy. So what, what are you doing? How are you balancing your, your leadership role and, and understanding and breaking down, um, the information? To uh, legislators like uh, Representative Oberlander, but also um, throughout other parts of the state, and even through publications like this one on a national level?
3: It's a great question. And it's, it's multifaceted, it's a grassroots campaign. We went to Harrisburg and sat down and met with legislators, key, key leaders, and we brought along a doctor, his physician assistant, and a patient. And we demonstrated the devastating effects right from the voices, the, the, the mouths of those that are affected and providers are affected too. Doctors have to take time out of their day to ha- have these conversations and complete these documents for insurance companies to appeal. And oftentimes they're talking with somebody who doesn't even know how to pronounce the prescriptions. But are making decisions in, in people's lives. And further, we had we had a hearing uh, in February of 2020 before the pandemic with the House Consumer Affairs Committee led by Representative Oberlander. And we talked about it a little yesterday. You know, we had momentum. The legislators really understood what we were talking about. And we had patients. We had a patient father, Robert. We had a physician assistant, Angie, who deals with liver cancer pa- or p- cancer patients, including liver cancer patients, and uh, Dr. Marion Mass, who's a pediatrician. And she demonstrated seeing simple switches on ear infection medication to allow a child to suffer seven days instead of using the medication that would clear it up in two days. Who does this to children? So this is real and hearing these messages from individuals affected, you know,
2: really resonated with the legislators. Don't you think, Donna? I do think so. And it was a great hearing. It was a great opportunity to get that message out. Now, that being said, uh, COVID did impact the momentum. Uh, Elections and changing of chairs impacted that momentum. And so in 2021, we started that process over again, and we will continue to push forward Uh, It is currently in the Consumer Affairs Committee. It's intentionally in the Consumer Affairs Committee because this is about protecting the consumer.
1: I'm wondering about the creating transparency to have drug rebates unlocked, the See-Through Act. Can you kind of uh, elaborate on that as well?
3: I've heard that creating the transparency to have drug rebate unlocked. Is that what you're talking about? See-through act. I guess I didn't, didn't put two and two together. That was previously proposed in the Senate finance committee by Senator Wyden of Oregon would be helpful addition as the Senate continues to negotiate the build back better act. You know, the see-through act would require PBMs to publicly disclose the aggregate amount of rebates they receive from pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical companies, and what proportion of those rebates go to Medicare beneficiaries. We think that transparency um, for for, uh, patients to understand, for the public to understand, will help to minimize or mitigate these unscrupulous practices.
1: Representative Overlander, do you have other examples in your experience in in being a a legislator and and understanding what your community goes through do you have anything else that you've experienced in your time um that that you think needs changed from a um from a, a laws that are in place to protect our consumers and and more importantly healthcare
2: certainly when we're talking about the pharmaceuticals and uh our community pharmacies. We we've been in a long-standing um, battle over pricing for our our community pharmacies. I, I've had many conversations with my local community pharmacies, where you know an an individual drug will change prices multiple times in a month, and uh, some of them are just incredible. the The cost and then what they're reimbursed just make it impossible for them to even be able to offer that. And if someone is prescribed a a drug for a life-saving reason, uh, there should be some accountability there. And I I think the transparency is always a plus.
1: So as someone that's in the state of Pennsylvania and you're talking to other state representatives constantly, as well as other people who are crafting uh, future bills one aspect and one part of the pharmacy um, care continuum that is very bizarre to me, and I've been in pharmacy now since 2004, so I understand this. I understand the domino effect that, that this has, and that is PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, that own pharmacies that then delegate pricing, rebates, um, a certain... Um, certain compensation, and in fact, they own pharmacies and they're also the insurance carrier. That seems extremely, even not knowing pharmacy like I do, that seems very biased and it seems like it's setting up uh, anti-competitive abilities within states, communities and at a, at a federal level. I would like to see the Pennsylvania um, Senate And eventually our national uh, lawmakers uh, put something in place that prevents an insurance carrier to own a pharmacy that they're the insurance carrier for (laughs) so that a community pharmacy, like you said, could show specific outcomes with regards to metrics, with regards to outcomes, and being able to show a chain store or a chain pharmacy's metrics which, by the way, they're going to be very different. And the reason why that those metrics and outcomes are going to be different is because the chain stores are about volume. They want 600, 1,200, 3,000 prescriptions a day. They want those processed. They want those adjudicated. And they want the money that is the, distrib- the, the um, dispensing fee paid through uh, the PBM, which They own the PBM, they own the pharmacy, and they want that machine to continue to pump out the prescriptions necessary in order to collect that reimbursement, um, pulling it, in many cases, from publicly funded sources, tax-funded sources. Uh, Representative Oberlander, what do you think of that concept to remove any um, pharmacy-oriented insurance carrier from being able to own pharmacies?
2: So as you described it, and as, as we've discussed, it certainly does seem to be uh, almost a monopoly. I don't know that that's exactly the right term, but it's almost a monopoly. Um, it does seem to create an unfair practice. And we have, in the past two sessions, to my recollection, have uh, worked on prescription, I, I'm sorry, um, pharmacy benefit management legislation. Uh, I can't recall the specifics on on it right now, but um, we've tried to lift that at least over the past two sessions. It is challenging, and I agree that there needs to be some, some transparency. There needs to be some accountability.
1: Susanna, the separation of a insurance provider who can be non-biased to any uh, care provider, any physician, any specialist, or in, the, in, in my favorite world, any pharmacist provider that's providing service to be able to look at it from a um, an audit perspective. I'm, an, I'm the insurer. It's called Todd Incorporated Insurance. And i have a hundred pharmacies that could tap into my insurance coverage and i could look at them um, without any bias and be able to say okay uh, pharmacy number 22 you're not doing a very good job and even the star using a star rating format for example you have two stars on average for your services and pharmacy number 79 you're an amazing pharmacy we're seeing better outcomes Therefore, you should receive more money for the reimbursement of your services. I know that sounds remedial. I know that sounds simplistic, but that's literally the way that it's supposed to be. How how does the insurer and the provider being um, either not owned by the same entity or being owned by the same entity, Susanna, how does that impact patient care, do you think?
3: I think it boils down to passing that cost off to the patient right and being incentivized to not do what's best for the patient is never a good practice right and we look back in history where you know not so many years ago pharmacists were not were not allowed to tell patients that you know if they paid out of pocket that it would be less expensive
1: the gag clause
3: Right. So we can't Mm -hmm. forget these things and we've chipped away at, you know, legislators like Donna and others have, you know, helped to bring these issues to light and to protect patients. And we think about the PBMs with um, most, you know, recent lawsuits for clawbacks where money should have been shared with either the pharmacies or the patients. And we also think about in our world, in the liver world, a lot of our medications are through specialty pharmacies. They just patients just don't go to a pharmacy like the CVS or the local pharmacies. They have to obtain their drugs through specialty pharmacy. So it adds another layer. And you know, the pharmacists we rely on as partners. They've been able to successfully treat patients for viral hepatitis C in a pharmacy setting, thus making it easier for patients who live in rural areas that it's hard for them to get to their specialists or providers. So the pharmacists play an important part in our world, and we want to, um, you know, make sure that their voice is heard as well because they're a conduit of education and support for our patients, and further when you think about you know the delineation between the pharmaceutical companies that create innovation life saving cures and therapies and you know even device companies that provide important uh, devices for patients the pbms have created quite a niche for themselves you know to collect a lot of money but offer very little to the patient, to the end user, to the consumer.
1: Absolutely. I think the confusion that I've read, um, some of the kickback uh, or some of the pushback, I should say, kickback makes you think of the money that's going back. So the pushback of the lobby groups that are are hired by the three biggest PBMs, um, you know, they their argument is allow the formulary sometimes to dictate what is covered and what isn't, but my question is why? And why are those decisions being made? Is it being made because that medication just came off of clinical trials and now it's full blown usage and it's a fancy new shiny drug and we wanna make sure that the physician is prescribing it and therefore it's placed on the top of the formulary, which is all about finance and all about generating revenue or is it truly novel and is it a breakout medication that is truly solving an issue, a very specific um, um, you know, disease or condition that patients are experiencing? And therein lies the need to have a group of pharmacists and physicians together that do nothing but become the czars of how do these medications get placed on formularies? Those people, those physicians and pharmacists should not have any anything to do with being employed by an insurance carrier or being employed by a pharmacy, but it should be a standalone organization, just like we have uh, auditing for compounding pharmacies or we have auditors to come into um, hospital facilities and inspect the facility. Imagine if those auditors or inspectors were hired by Aetna to go uh, investigate hospitals that were using Etna as a main, you know, insurer of their services. You know how how good would those inspectors be if they weren't separated with a very thick firewall between where their compensation comes from, and you know, and and the actual uh, level of service that a patient's getting through the hospital or through the services being provided. There's something to that. That is extremely simple that you could we could we could all sit here describing this to a class of eighth graders. And I could draw on a chalkboard exactly the pieces and simplify it. But the PBMs don't want it simplified. They want it complex. They purposely want it to stay complex so that the legislators don't really understand what's preventing um, an organization like the Federal Trade Commission why they voted two out of four not to open up and investigate more of our PBMs. And this is politics and this is um, uh, uh, revenue and this is a great lobbying to keep that from happening rather than the focus on true um, true healthcare. What are, what's, your, what's your thoughts around that, Susanna?
3: Well, I think that it's a useful conversation and if we're serious about making health care more affordable and accessible for patients then we we have to include all of the pbms the insurance companies we have to cl- include them in that conversation you know as we review our health care system you know we're led to believe that insurers and you know biopharma companies hospitals you know are necessary spokes in the wheel, but, you know, some argue that PBMs are, but we must always continue to hold each player accountable and ask the hard questions, whether or not patients are benefiting or suffering from these existing procedures and and unbiased, you know, thought leaders need to be a part of that conversation.
1: Representative Oberlander, what do you say to fellow, um, representatives that may be listening to this and encouraging them to even reach out to you for a reference on bills that they're trying to come up with for maybe their state and, and really leveraging the knowledge that you have as, as you've built this pathway to, uh, to a better, um, better environment for fellow Pennsylvanians?
2: I think that each one of our states is unique and, and different in its own way. Uh, But I would be more than happy to speak to anyone who has an interest in following a similar path. I think that there were some great points brought up today that um, are potential suggestions for other areas that we can shine the light on issues that are impacting our constituents. And interestingly enough, one of the things that you had mentioned about the formulary, we were getting the we were getting a different point of view from the insurance companies about what happens if a, a medicine falls off the, the FDA list. For example, they find that there's a problem with it. Well, certainly that just tries to muddy the water because the reality is we would never want to hold up. You know, if there's a problem with a particular medicine, it's creating another issue or it's causing people to lose their life. Well, of course, you're going to have to change that. But that was one of the things that they were using as an excuse rather than having new medications added, it was, well, what if we need to take that off? And so I think that um, an answer to your question, our legislators across this Commonwealth and across this nation need to kind of have those conversations, know what the arguments are, and then work to find solutions together.
1: It's, it's called the NFC. I just made it up. The National Formulary Committee. <laughs> just put that organization together, throw a bunch of pharmacists in there that love to crunch numbers and understand um, true medical outcomes based on ongoing research. I don't think we should ever stop researching. We put medications through these very long clinical trials and research and then Um, We have to continue to have um, pharmacists mix medications in a lab environment so they understand, hey, comorbidity is real. That is, there are patients out there that are suffering with multiple disease states. How are these medications over a period of time impacting um, other things in their life, including the liver functionality, (laughs) Susanna? I immediately thought of that where the liver is doing all of this work to, uh, filter out, you know, uh, toxicity within the liver. And sometimes the liver can't keep up because you're on, you just went from six meds to 12 meds. And if we had, a um, a non-bias committee, that could really look at this. It could be very much, uh, scientific driven and evidence-based driven to really help create policy in the insurance space. And to me it's like a no dam moment, but, um, we're we're prohibited to having such clarity because of uh, the the profiteering of of certain organizations that are in the insurance space.
3: That's a good point taken. And as you said, the liver is you know affected by any medications is taken because, of course, it's the filter for your body. But you know, additionally, um, there is a study by the Alliance for Patient Access. In 2019, that nearly 60% of patients who experienced non-medical switching reported a complication as a result of their medication change, such as re-emerging disease symptoms or new side effects or interactions with other medications they take. And you know, I think what concerns me the most is that I believe there are many, many people out there who don't even know that they have had this um, practice done to them. And so, you know, our charge is the Pennsylvania's for Fair Health coverage is to find these stories and bring it out. Because as Donna said earlier in the conversation, these insurance companies have looked at us and said, we don't do this. This never happens. But when we do it, it's because we're, you know, better than the FDA, that we know, you know, more than the next guy. And so we really need to. And this, I think this podcast is going to help us to get our message out there. There are 10 other states, maybe 11, that are leading the charge with non-medical switching. And I'm really excited and commend uh, Representative Oberlander for having a companion bill in the Senate. I think that will help us to move our missions forward more expediently. And I think with Senator Ward on task with it, that... We have we have are set up for success to get this these bills over the finish lines
1: in closing um, representative oberlander do you want to um, make a call out to um, other representatives or other uh, organizations that you'd like um, to involve in helping you with not only the legislation but continuing to um, put the put the patients first
2: I would like to take the opportunity to thank Susanna and the Liver Alliance for all of their hard work and their partnership. I would also like to take a moment and thank those who have co-sponsored the bill with me and to thank Senator Ward for her willingness to have the companion piece. I think that we are making great progress and I certainly would welcome other legislators not just in Pennsylvania, but across the nation, to reach out to me if you uh, feel inclined to, you know, have questions or you want to do something similar. I'm more than happy to to speak with you and um, look forward to getting this across the finish line.
1: This has been an honor to have both of you speaking on non-medical switching and PBM reform, uh, insurance reform, for that matter. It's it's uh, something that has uh, become more and more clear um, to me over the years. And the clarity comes from simplicity and um, the more complex, um, uh, you know, um, arguments that I hear from the PBM lobbyists, the more I realize that there is um, there is a white knuckle grip on their profits that they do not want to let go. And by the way, they don't have to let it go, but it just has to move more to the patient care than it does to the pure profit that's being uh, generated year after year, and it's going up. And it seems like our our um, coverage and, and coverages are going down in in the in the ongoing uh, medical uh, services that our patients are getting. It's 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 lacking, and it has to change. So. Conversations like this with um, with people that are in the trenches fighting for um, better health care, uh, and um, Donna, you you're a you're a champion of Pennsylvanians, and I appreciate you being here. And Susanna, thank you so much for your leadership, specifically in uh, liver conditions and and really fighting for patients. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Todd. Thanks, Todd.
0: PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.